Holy, holy 
I have <clears throat> been digging into a new series that I'd like us all to go on, on the cross. It's because when we were studying through John and we went through chapter 19 and 20 a month ago, John's narrative of the cross and the resurrection I used as my scripture reading then 1 Corinthians chapter one. And in verse 23, Paul says this about the cross and the resurrection. If you remember, he says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Foolishness and a stumbling block to believers and non-believers. And that got me. And I'd like to uh, go there. And I promise you that we'd figure out how to transition. And I've been having trouble finding the transition from the end of the Gospel of John and then the remembrance that we did last week. Because um, I've been reluctant to leave John behind. I wouldn't mind starting over or go backwards. Why don't we you know, just uh, go back to chapter one, but then we'd be like, like prayer meeting and we'd be three years, four years into it. And I was, like I said, I was trying to figure out even up until yesterday how to make this transition. And I got the text that my brother Mike was in the hospital. And I remember him sending me this recording because I asked him to, if he could send me a recording of the Revelation song for the last time that we studied Revelation about four years ago when we went through the seven churches. Remember, this was our meditation. Uh, we, I only used it once because I wanted him to teach us how to sing it, and then we sang it for meditation for, for that series. So when Arlene was praying for Mike Peterson, if you didn't know who he was, that was him. And we're just praying that uh, one day he'll be able to sing it full and live and everything again. So, but that worship scene that the song brings to us comes from Revelation chapter four. And we don't make a connection usually from Revelation four and five to John 19 and 20 or Luke 23 or Matthew 26 or Mark 14 and the crucifixion and the resurrection. We usually don't make uh, that transition. And I shared with you when we went through John is John's perspective on Jesus' crucifixion is unique. He has information in it that the other gospel writers don't. He has an emphasis that the other gospel writers don't. And we forget that maybe one of the reasons he has a different, uh, that he sees it through different eyes as he writes his gospel is because of everything that he saw because he's the revelator too. That scene that Mike just sang for us in Revelation 4, John witnessed and wrote it down. So I think that the reason that when it came time to tell us of that day, of that most fateful event, of that arguably the greatest event in all human history, at least the most written about, the most talked about, the most controversial, one that may have caused more change in the world than any single event. Maybe the reason that John has a different perspective on it is because he's seen the heavenly perspective on it. 
And you may not know it yet, but hopefully by today, you'll see that in Revelation, Revelation talks about the cross and the resurrection also right here in chapter four and chapter five. Like I said, Mike saying about chapter four. And the reason that I wanted to do this and make this transition is we'll be studying how the cross is a stumbling block to believers and foolishness to non-believers. So why not take a look as to what Revelation tells us about it, what Revelation, or at least how Revelation viewed the event, if you will. So what Mike sings uh, to us about is a point in time, I believe, uh, before the resurrection. I mean the crucifixion, if you will. And Revelation 4 describes in detail God's throne. In fact, he, he describes what it looked like. Mike uh, uh, sings it to us. You know, it was, it was jeweled. It was uh, covered by a rainbow. It had lightning and thunder coming from it. All calling to mind, at least, if, if, if you were uh, a, a Jewish listener in the first century, all calling to mind God the Father himself. The creator of the heavens and the universe sits on the throne. As a matter of fact, we don't know who he is. There's not even a name in Revelation 4. It just says this holy one, this one is seated on the throne. Around the throne are representation of all creation, four living creatures representing all of life on earth, 24 elders all dressed in white representing, uh, um, shoot, the... It just flew right out of my head. Representing restored and ransomed humanity around the throne. Or at least in anticipation of ransomed humanity. Because right now, as I said, it's the Holy One sitting on the throne. That's all we know. That's all we know. We were introduced to him in Revelation 1. Revelation 1 is clear. This is Yahweh of the Old Testament. This This is Yahweh of the Exodus. This is Yahweh of the flood and of creation. And he is seated on the throne. The one that you heard Mike just sing about. So in the midst of this, before chapter five goes, in the midst of this constant worship, this holy, 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 before chapter five begins, something catches John's eye and he immediately tells about it. In chapter five it says, I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. In the midst of this, of this huge, beautiful worship scene, loud and, 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 and gorgeous, and yeah, I think it'll sound just like Mike to me. The one seated on the throne, notice, no name, right? No name, no description. The one seated on the throne, and in his right hand, which by the way, in, in, in the Bible and in prophecy, the right hand is always the hand of power. It's funny is that even in ancient times, right-handed people were the dominant people. Left-handed people have always been in the minority. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that, but you have, okay? But if you could throw a curveball, you have a much better uh, chance of making it to the big leagues than a right-hander does. Just letting you know. Just letting you know. The one seated on the throne is holding this scroll, if you will, and it's sealed with seven seals. And a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? It's just sitting there. It's sitting there in the hand of the Holy One. It's just sitting there and it's all sealed up. And apparently, no one's worthy to what? 
No one's worthy to open it, it says. And I saw, and in no one or on heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or what? Even what? Even look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. We can only speculate as to what John already knew, but apparently John knows something about that scroll that we don't. And by the way, he never tells us. He doesn't tell us. But the, the fact, if you will, the fact that he begins to weep bitterly because no one opens it, and the only thing that we can imagine is that the reason why John begins to weep is that we don't notice what he may have noticed when they noticed the scroll and the angel began to speak, is that worship of God stopped. This is a crisis scene. That constant worship that you hear Mike sing about in Revelation 4, that constant worship all of a sudden comes to an abrupt halt. And it's because of this scroll. Notice the worship stops. That's why we're able to hear the angel proclaim. Is there anybody out there what? Worthy. John knows that the worship stopped. That's the only indication that we have that he understands maybe something that we don't which is why he wrote it down for us, so that we could get it. But all praising and worshiping grinds to a halt. It's silence. It's so much different than chapter four. Something else is going on here. An event has happened. Something has happened, and it has to do with that what? With that scroll and the seals that seal it. By the way, is there a significance in the number seven in the book of Revelation? There are two numbers that's God's number in Revelation, God's number, always God's number throughout the Bible. One is 12, the other is seven. Seven uh, represents a completeness, a wholeness. Seven spirits, uh, seven days. It's, 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 it's God's number. God doesn't do anything halfway. He does it completely. And if anything was done in sevens, you can guarantee there isn't anything more after that. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Revelation, by the way, is the complete, absolute history of the church. From the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, all the way to the seventh seal and the seventh bowl and the seventh trumpet. Complete history of humanity with the church on the planet. With me? Seven. The other is 12 when it comes to God's people. 12 multiples of 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Jesus didn't just pick those numbers out of a hat. When he chose 12 disciples, he knew exactly what he was doing. Because he was also the same one that chose 12 tribes. 12 when it comes to people is always the total number of God's people. So what he's trying to tell you is that that baby is sealed. <laughs> it is completely sealed. And the fate that we'll learn, the fate of all humanity rests inside that scroll. And there is nobody who can open it. So you understand why the worship has stopped. It's a crisis scene. Opening that book is crucial to everything. It'll open up history. It'll open up the future. And I want you to get this, and I don't want you to misunderstand me, okay? 
But it's something that even God, the creator, chooses not to solve. What I have in my notes is, is that he cannot solve it. I don't believe that's true. He's God, isn't he? He's the one holding the scroll, right? It's in his right hand, right? Could he open it? Sure. But he's chosen not to for a reason. Why? And he allows the angel to actually proclaim, is there anybody out there worthy? So somebody with a uh, uh, not so um, open mind, somebody with a skeptical mind can say that actually maybe God can't open it. No, I think he can, but he chooses not to. Not in this form. Not the one sitting on the throne. He chooses not to. The solution Although the solution, I t to me, the answer is in the solution to the angel. The angel says they're looking for someone who is what? Worthy. We're looking for someone who is worthy. Who is worthy? So there are two key words here that we're looking for when it comes to opening this scroll. One is that they need to be worthy. The other is, and I've missed this completely at times, the other is, is that it needs to be a someone. For some reason, God the Father and Creator has decided it isn't Him. He's looking for someone. And they need to be what? They need to be worthy. Will you go with me just a little bit to go from someone to person? This needs to be a person. Who is worthy? Is there a person out there? Notice not even the 24 elders who are clothed completely in white. None of them can do it. None of the four living creatures that represent all of creation on earth, none of them can do it. There's not an angel flying in mid-heaven or around the throne or in heaven. None of them can do it. And for some reason, the Father wants someone who's worthy. They need to be worthy, and they need to be a someone, if you will. Worthiness on the throne is what's at stake. The angel says, who's worthy? Wait, the song said, you're worthy, God, for you are creator of all things. Now all of a sudden, no one is worthy to open the scroll? No one in heaven or under earth? Or under, even under it. <laughs> he said, there hasn't been anybody who's ever lived who is worthy to open the scroll. So if you want to start, you know, looking through maybe uh, the Patriarch's Hall of Fame, we're not, you know, we're talking not Elijah, not Moses, not even Enoch. The most righteous people that we know and none of them can open it. But what gets me, what gets me about this is that the creator is sitting there and he won't do it either. Hmm. It's a point in time, it's a general description, and remember whenever you see a vision in Revelation, it's a vision that isn't necessarily bound by earthly time, but it seems to 
concern itself. Revelation and heaven and, and wherever this realm is seems to concern itself with things that happen here on earth. Even sometimes to wrap around it. And, and so when did this event, when does this interlude take place? I'll argue that it takes place exactly what we were talking about. I'll tell you what will help us. A more foundational text to this might be Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we see the same scene, but we see it through a different perspective. We, we see it through a different set of eyes. Okay? You have to remember that what sets these visions apart are the times in which they were given to the human witnesses that wrote them down. Daniel is writing this down some 700, 700, 800 B.C. John's writing it down after the resurrection of Jesus. It's the two same scenes. It's just that the events on earth have not happened yet between the two. So that's why he looks different, say, to Daniel than he does to John. But Daniel 7, actually, when we begin this, this scene, it's the exact same scene, and I'll show you why I believe that. As I watched, thrones were set in place, okay? So there's one thing that we have in common. There's a throne, right? Thrones are in both visions. And a what? An ancient one. Some of your scriptures should say ancient of days. Somebody who is what? Ancient of days is a good Bible way of saying he's eternal. He had no beginning. He had no end, okay? Ancient of days, it's, a, it's an idiom that actually means eternal. So the eternal one is sitting on the throne in Daniel. Is he also sitting on the throne in Revelation 5? Yes, the one on the throne, okay? And an ancient one took his throne, his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, same throne, same throne. Its wheels were burning fire. By the way, the, the throne in Ezekiel has these wheels on it too. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and all the, and again, books is a misnomer. Okay, there were no books in Daniel's day. They may have played with codexes, but that's going to come much, much later. It should say, and the scrolls were opened. I'll take that back. It is possible that Babylon had books up until this time. But they weren't books, they were tablets. Babylon wrote on clay tablets, if you will. But the books or the scrolls, the idea of records are what? During this judgment, they are what? They are opened. Okay, but I want you to notice uh, after, after Daniel in 11 and 12 tells us about the controversy that's going on on the planet during this time, it's about the little horn and you know all of those, all of those words, but it says in verse 13, it, it also says here, the, what goes along with the books being opened is this, all of a sudden he sees somebody else. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a what? I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he came to the ancient one. He came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. You saw all the parallels, right? 
But the way that the books are opened in Daniel is because this guy shows up. And Daniel even will go as far to tell you he is a someone. He's a what? He's a person. He's a human. He is a son of man. So just as he shows up in Daniel, he also shows up in Revelation 5. Notice, one of the elders said to me, don't what? Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The Son of Man is the one that opens up the scroll or is at least allowed to open up the, the scroll in Daniel 7 in this judgment scene. In, in Revelation 5, uh, this one shows up. But notice, his humanity is confirmed by saying he's from the Lion of Judah. He's from the Root of David, which means he has a human genealogy. You with me? He's a what? He's a person. He's a someone. So this one's humanity is confirmed. And the elder says, he can open the scroll. He's the one that can do it. And then he says, and I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, a what? A lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered or slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out on the earth. So he announces this man, the elder announces this man who has a human genealogy. He's a son of Judah, a son of David, if you will. He has a human genealogy, but there is also something else about his genealogy that is absolutely divine. He has seven what? He has seven eyes so he can see all. He has seven horns so he has the complete all power, if you will. Seven horns, seven eyes, seven what? He is completely anointed in the Holy Spirit of God. He is God, but he is a son of man. Son of God, son of man. I know that this isn't a great mystery. Who are we talking about so far? Talking about Jesus. And when did this little interlude take place between Revelation 4 and Revelation 5? Notice that when he does make his appearance in the throne room, he already looks like a lamb, not just a lamb, but a lamb that has been what? The resurrection. This is where Jesus went. He shows up for something. He shows up in the midst of all of this for something. When he's conquering, uh, and, and he says that, that um, there's something different about him. He's not an earthly general king like David having to slaughter enemies, okay? He conquers because he is slain. It says, I, I, sat, I saw between the throne four living creatures, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits of God, a complete genealogy of the son of man and a son of God. And he goes and he what? He just walks up and he takes the scroll. All of this woe, saying woe, woe is us. There is nobody worthy. The one on the throne doesn't even have to ask him. He's just able to walk into the room. 
walk right into the room and take the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. When this conquering occurs, when this guy comes back, when he shows up, all of a sudden now worship takes place again. But something's happened. We just witnessed the coronation of a new king, the new one to sit on the throne. And the new one isn't the new one at all. He is the ancient one. And as soon as he takes the scroll, what happens? Worship continues again. The angels, the elders, the creatures, they all bust out in song. They all start singing the song again. Except this time they say it's a brand new song. Notice in verse nine it says they sing a what? They sing a new song. A new song it says. You are worthy. The song then switches from singing to the one on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is you, the one on the throne, O God Almighty. It now switches to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests serving our God, and they will reign. Where? On earth. He shows up in heaven to be coronated with his new crown, king of kings, lord of lords. Worship in heaven takes off again. And then we're also guaranteed that those saints that he ransomed with his slaughtering, if you will, we get to worship him even here. Don't you love a heaven's eye view? when God takes you. The lamb is worthy because he's human. He's a son of man. And what made him worthy apparently was that he was slain. And in doing so, he bought a people from all peoples to become a kingdom of priests, if you will. And when that happens, it all busts out. Look at verse 11. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They're numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. All heaven and earth is on board with this brand new coronation. All heaven and earth is on board with all of it. No one is saying, hold on a second, hold on a second. That's not the Father, that's the Son. Hold on a second, hold on a second. That's not the Father or the Son, that's the Holy Spirit. That's not to be worshipped. Here you have it all. You've got the Trinity and all of heaven is saying, we worship the one on the throne. All of that authority and worship and everything is transferred now to the Lamb. If angels can do it who have never fallen, how much more could we worship him as God? Because that's what John is trying to get across to us. Right? If the universe is on board, we on earth, part of the universe in this little corner of it, we can get on board too. And we can sing how? 
full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's the death of the lamb that makes him worthy. First, it's his humanness. It's his son of manness, if you will. And then it's his death. Sin is a human problem. Our death is what we earned by our sin. The one on the throne is God, creator himself. In order to be able to pay the price for our sin, he decided to become one of us. He decided to become a human to pay the human price for death. So those of us who are redeemed, we should be singing even a little bit louder than the ones who are not. And by the angels singing, they, they believe that they have part in this redemption too. Even unfallen creatures who didn't need to be redeemed sing as if they were redeemed because they see the grace of God in just their creation, just the fact that they're here. This is what I'm saying. It's not that the father couldn't open the scroll. It's that he decided not to because he knew that he needed to, or wanted at least, if you will, to become human in order to do it in that human form. That way then he could truly make all things new. So don't think we're worshiping uh, God light just because the lamb is on the throne and not the father. The lamb is on the throne and Revelation is assuring us that if the lamb is on the throne, the father is on the throne. They're all on the throne. And we give him honor. I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one who's seated on the throne and to the lamb to be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So he's human, he's divine, he chooses to die. That's a unique combination, isn't it? Only one to think of. There's only one that we can think of. Again, if you haven't guessed, who are they singing about? They're singing about Jesus, our God, our Father, Son of the Father. Not either or, not either the Son or the Father, but the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not either or, all. And just to add on top of it, if you, if you wanna know how significant really there, this really is, uh, uh, Dr. Pauline uh, points out to us that there are five hymns in, in Revelation four and five, actual hymns themselves, at least, at least two verses of each hymn. There's one in eight, one in 11, one in nine, one in uh, five, nine and 10, five, 12 and five, 13. Five new hymns that they sing unto them. The first two are the ones that they sing to the one on the throne, if you will. The four living creatures, each of them six wings full of eyes all around saying, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. You are worthy, O Lord of God. So the first hymn is to the one seated on the throne, this holy one, if you will. The second they sing is to the lamb. 
They sing a new song in Revelation 5, 9. You are worthy to take the scroll. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed for God. Saints from every tribe, language, and people. You made them to be kingdom of priests. They sing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb. So they go from the one seated on the throne to the lamb, and then finally they sing one to both. In verse 13, right there. To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. By the way, you better like that song because we're going to be singing it forever. We might as well fall in love with it right now, right? the whole sequence moves to this climax. It's when the lamb joins the father. It's when the lamb takes the scroll. Because in chapter, in, in chapter five, he's going to begin to, well, by six, he's going to uh, begin to open the scroll. It's going to uh, you know, start the clock on, for us, mostly history, but also start the clock uh, on the history of the church and the future of the church. This whole thing is this interlude. All of it stops. The lamb comes to show the universe what he's done, what he's accomplished. See, and I think that that's when John, why when John, say, maybe 30 years after this, you know, um, 70 years after it actually happened, when John sits down and begins to write out the narrative of the cross and of the resurrection, he remembers these words and now he figures out what he was saying. Remember, Mary sees him, recognizes him, and Jesus has to say, don't hold on to me, because I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. He remembers Revelation 4 and 5, he remembers seeing it, and now he puts them together. He goes, that was where he was going. That's what he did. And oh, by the way, that's what we were called to proclaim. We get to sing a brand new song. Go tell my brothers what you've seen. Go tell my brothers what I just told you. I have to go to my father. Go to say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. That's why it's a brand new song. No humans have ever sung it before. It's, the other reason, the main reason that it's a brand new song is there's never been anyone like the lamb. Not even close. The angel can't find anybody on earth, under earth, yet to be of earth. There's no one, no one like Jesus. John has context now when he begins to report Jesus' debate with the church. All of a sudden, these words come alive to me now. Back in chapter eight, he tells the church, he tells the believers, the ones who believe the the cross is a stumbling block, by the way, that's what we'll get into, okay? But the church, the believers of the day, he has to tell them, he says, your ancestor Abraham, who's he speaking to? 
He's speaking to all the children of Abraham, which is Israel, which is, is God's chosen people, his children. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you before, remember they, they said, you're not even 50 years old. How'd you see Abraham? And he said, very truly, I tell you before Abraham was, I what? He was seated on the throne already. With me? In chapter 10, what my father has given me is greater than all else. No one can snatch it out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. When John goes back to write all these words down, he's seen Revelation 4 and 5. He's seen the lamb and the father become one in power and in glory and be given all praise on heaven and earth. He hears these words anew. So again, the father doesn't say that he can't do it. The father just decides to do it this way. Nothing short, nothing short of love. He could have done it. He could have done it from the throne, couldn't he? By the way, five and a half days, no. Yeah, five and a half days of creation, he does it all from the throne, doesn't he? He just speaks, and it happens. It's not until the second half of the sixth day when it comes to creating you and me, he gets off the throne, gets down in the dirt in his hands and knees, forms us from the dust of the ground, and then lifts us up and breathes into us the breath of life. So he's not gonna save us from the throne. He's gonna come off the throne. He's gonna come down. And he's gonna walk with us. And he's gonna talk with us. He could have done it on the throne, but the reason that he didn't, the reason that he just doesn't begin to open the scroll from the throne was that he wanted to save us. And he wanted to save us in a particular way. He wanted to save us the same way that he created us. In the dirt. Walking with us and talking with us. This is why it's a new song. Nobody's ever had a God like this before. Moses, who knew all the gods of Egypt and all the pagan gods of the ancient world, hears God speak for the first time. I have heard the sound and the, and the agony of my children, and I have come down. Moses never heard of a God who would do that. Not for puny little beings. Desire of Ages has this statement. Satan's purpose is to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. Humans are now bound to God for all eternity. It will never be broken. For God so loved the world. To who? A fallen human race. Jesus will forever retain his human form. His very form in the kingdom will be the very testimony of how, he, how much he loved us. It will be a testimony to all created creatures. The son looks like one of them. He walks 
And he talks. By the way, that'll be our testimony too. I remember Paul saying in, in chapter five of Romans, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. If you're a good person, I might die for you. I might die for you if you're a good person. But God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now having been justified by his blood, we'll be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. That's what they're singing about. That's what the 24 elders are singing about around the throne. The 24 elders, by the way, are us. They're every human that's ever believed. They're every human that's believed they've been ransomed, that they've been atoned for, that they've been justified, that they've been died for. That's why there are 24 of them, not just 12, which would be a complete number in any other place. He times it by two. It's everyone who would believe plus everyone who would believe. It's who? Is it you? Do you believe? Then yeah. You're one of the 24 elders. So when I hear the church and I hear Paul telling us that the, that the cross is actually a stumbling block to believers and foolishness to those who don't believe, those are the things that I want to explore. But Revelation 4 and 5 just to me introduces it perfectly, doesn't it? To see the cross and the resurrection from the perspective of heaven. And by the way, our salvation, our death, the emergency, the crisis was actually us. Everything stopped in heaven to make sure we could be saved. Because remember, that's the problem. That's one of the stumbling blocks. And we'll, and we'll look at it again. But back in chapter five of John, Jesus had to tell them, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But it's they that testify of me. And yet you refuse to come to me for life. The cross is the stumbling block, not to unbelievers, the cross is the stumbling block to believers. What is it we believe? Is the cross still a stumbling block to you? It can't be to me. That's why I want to take a look at it. The church's hardest problem was that he and the Father are one. John sees the Lamb take the scroll in Revelation 5. He writes down in, in, in John 10, and he writes down in John 5, and he writes in John 8. You better get used to this idea. He's not just a holy person, he's God. Yet we still think it's a stumbling block. And to me, that's now, those words ring so much truer now to me. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I no longer will speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. On that day, you'll ask my name. 
I do, not ask to, I, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. How could he testify so uh, assuredly, if you will, that the Father loved him? Because it's him. And always remember this, too. For us, the cross is a point in time that happens. In heaven, heaven didn't need a point in time for it to happen. The Father always felt this way about us. The Father always lived his life as if he was willing to die for us, because he did. You with me? The cross isn't a point in time or an act in history. His heart, his attitude, everything that took him to the cross is his eternity. He has always been this way. And by the way, the Father didn't need the cross in order to love us. He didn't kill his son in order to, Jesus didn't die in order to get the Father to like us. You with me? I hope to talk a little bit about the cross as stumbling block, about the idea of substitution, penal atonement, that somebody had to be punished for this. It's the difference between being ransomed and being punished. So, worthy, worthy is the lamb, right? Worthy is the lamb. We sing a new song, a brand new song, because there's been nobody like the Lamb. Nobody like the Lamb. So, there, found a way to introduce our new series. When we'll get to it, I'm not sure. Because <laughs> we got next week and then we have communion the week after that. But uh, I wouldn't mind this taking us to Christmas. No better way to, discover, to, to me to, st to study the Messiah than to be studying what he did for us before he came. Amen? Thank you all for hanging in there.